There's a new campaign underway in battleground states. Supporters trying to rally voters in key markets to voice their interest in transportation infrastructure funding. Former U.S. House members Steve Israel, a Democrat from New York, and Ryan Costello, a Republican from Pennsylvania, are on the advisory board of the group calling itself Build Together. Americans would be well served to weigh in on transportation spending because, as we'll hear today, the benefits extend far beyond faster commutes and fewer traffic jams. This is Hard Facts. I'm Robert Johnson. The Senate's top authority on all things legislative, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, has spoken. Talking with Politico journalists about prospects for a transportation funding bill, he said it will be done. It won't be as big as the president indicated this spring, but the Senate intends for its part to get a reauthorization passed. Majority Leader McConnell's EPW committee approved America's Transportation Infrastructure Act before it left for the August break, proposing to increase spending by 27 percent, making it the largest highway bill in history at $287 billion. The influential Business Roundtable has done some thinking about transportation spending and earlier this year issued a report showing how far the money goes into the economy and the pockets of all Americans. Matt Sonneson is the Business Roundtable's Vice President of Infrastructure, Energy, and Environment. He joined Hard Facts recently to discuss the report entitled Delivering for America. Business Roundtable is an association of roughly 200 CEOs of America's largest companies. Uh, Those companies have more than 15 million employees and more than $7 trillion in annual revenues. These are really the leading companies of the country, and they comprise every sector of the economy. So whether it's banking or manufacturing, whether it's healthcare or aviation, there's someone in Business Roundtable and probably a few companies that are the leaders in that space. Obviously, at their level, they're interested in everything going on in Washington. Infrastructure is on your agenda. They're interested in that as well. Why? You know, infrastructure is really the lifeblood of the economy. If you don't have a way to move people, goods, the necessary inputs to the economy like water and energy or the ability to communicate with one another, you don't have a functioning economy. You can't be a modern country. And that's what infrastructure is. It's, the, it's what connects each of us to each other, all those different systems. So it really is critical to making our economy work. And when policymakers underinvest in it, uh, as has been happening lately, America's CEOs get concerned that things aren't right and they ramp up their efforts to try to correct it. On that front, the roundtable offered a study earlier this year looking at the macroeconomic impacts of public investment in infrastructure. Tell us why you engaged in that effort and what you were hoping to accomplish. We've been concerned for really the last five years now about the lack of ability here in Washington to make a proper reinvestment in our nation's infrastructure. 
And we realize that there are others out there. In fact, one of your guests on a previous podcast, the uh, civil engineers, have done an incredibly good job of explaining what the consequences of that underinvestment has been. Our poor grades, whether it's in bridges or roads uh, or our water systems, I think they gave American infrastructure overall a D plus. So when we thought about what's the part of the conversation that Business Roundtable could help add some new value and and try to help policymakers see not just the cost of their failure to act so far, but the potential benefits to their constituents, to the American people, if we did act, maybe that would help. So that's why we undertook a macroeconomic modeling study of the benefits of making a proper investment in infrastructure. And we hope that then by telling that story, by showing that the benefits don't just mean that we get where we want to go faster, though that is absolutely true, that there's an economic benefit that comes to that too in terms of jobs, wages, and real disposable income for every American family. You did this in partnership with the University of Maryland? They have at the university one of the top three macroeconomic modeling models in the country. There are a couple others we also explored working with. But this is where economists take thousands of points of data and they're able to put it together with the power of modern computing and simulate what would happen if you change inputs over time, such as making a bigger investment in infrastructure, what happens over the next 10, 20, 30 years as a result of that increased investment. They can do it in terms of jobs and wages. They can do it in terms of changes for individual sectors. They can help us understand the relative benefits to each of the 50 states. And we found that to be an incredibly rich source of data, and that's why we asked them to work with us on this project. And your interest or your focus was on publicly funded projects, correct? That's right. What we're thinking about here is the lack of public investment, and that really focuses primarily in two areas where the federal government plays a role in public investment in our systems, um, and that's in transportation and in water. And the other areas of infrastructure I mentioned, energy and communications, those are primarily privately funded. And when I say privately funded, it means that the ratepayer in one form or another is paying their bill and then the company that they're paying reinvests in the infrastructure that we use, whether it's Verizon's Fios lines, which are the newest, highest grade that Verizon has going to the average household or whether it's improved grid technology to be able to better deliver electricity to our homes as we get different sources of input of electricity. The private sector is doing that, frankly, quite well. The public sector is where we've had a problem in transportation and water, and we're seeing that, right? We all hear it in the news when we hear about bridges that are on the verge of collapse or that are structurally deficient, uh, when we hear about uh, water systems that are delivering water that isn't of the quality it ought to be or not delivering enough or there are leaks all over the place. Those are the systems where we need greater investment and where government has not been stepping up to the plate. Now that we've established the study, the reason for it, who helped you compile it. Tell us what you found. Well, what we found was that when you make a proper investment in the system, 
And let me describe what that means. It means that we would not only bring our transportation and water infrastructure systems up to a state of good repair, but we would also expand capacity to meet current and future needs. Said another way, if you're thinking about a road, it would mean that you're not just repairing the potholes or putting fresh paint down to get the stripes right or repaving where it might be getting rough after a rough winter, but you're actually adding an extra lane on those roads where you've got increased traffic because we have a, a growing economy and a growing population. So when you make that kind of an investment across all of our different transportation needs, whether it's roads and bridges, transit, aviation, you know, water transportation, and our water infrastructure, we estimated that that's roughly a $737 billion investment over 10 years above our current projected investment in infrastructure. Now, that's not all federal money. That's a combination of federal, state, and local, and a little bit of properly incentivized private investment. When you make that kind of an investment, that you see really big returns for the economy. So for each dollar in, our modeling showed that you get nearly $4 out in additional economic growth over 20 years. And that additional economic growth actually spreads out really well. It's not just money that gets in the pockets of those who work on building the infrastructure, construction workers and others. But it ends up translating to every American household. The average American household would see an increase of roughly $1,400 every year in real disposable income. That's the money they have left over to spend after they take care of basic necessities, including transportation. Or in 20 years, that would translate to more than $28,000 that would be in their pockets. So this is a really good investment. You don't see returns like that on the ways that government spends money very often. It also translates into increased jobs. We estimate roughly a million additional jobs over 10 years, increased productivity, rising GDP, and it catalyzes private investment, uh, adding almost $2 trillion in private investment over 20 years. That private investment isn't just investment in infrastructure. What it means is that when a company is able to move their goods more quickly or they're getting higher quality water, they're able to take the money that they've got and invest it in growing their production or growing their business here in the United States. And it benefits our economy overall when they do that. We hear so much about the short-term investment, spending the money, but your report focuses on what happens once those facilities are open and the economy is able to use them. That's right. The right way to do infrastructure is not to do a huge flash in the pan kind of one or two year bump and then cut it right back down. That's what we tried in 2009 after President Obama was elected with very good intentions. And some of that stimulus money did help with what was going on in the economy then. But we weren't able to properly invest in infrastructure with that kind of a short-term bump. Rather, what you need is a longer-term increase. And then you want to flatten off at a level of investment that will keep us in a consistently good position. We've been short on that really since about 2003. If you look at what CBO has told us about the nation's infrastructure investment, you'll see that our capital expenditures, so that's investment in new infrastructure, 
and our operations and maintenance, that is just keeping up the infrastructure we have, both tended to go up at roughly the same rate from 1956 until 2003. But then from 03 to the present day, capital investment fell off while operations and maintenance continued to increase a little bit. And that increase, by the way, is what you want. You don't want a flat line because we have a growing economy. So you need to grow your infrastructure while you're growing the economy. But that falling off has meant that then we've got repair problems, but it also means that we're not increasing capacity to meet our growing economic needs. And that's why all of us are sitting longer in traffic. And it's why we're getting increasingly frustrated that our infrastructure isn't serving our needs. I thought it was interesting, Matt, that the report also makes clear your intent was not to advocate for a specific spending amount. Why not? You know, we did our best to estimate an input for this model, but it really was an estimate. And we also wanted to make sure that we were recognizing that the way this will work out will be a combined federal, state, and local, and private effort. And so while we have estimates as to what that would be, there are different ways you could divide that pie and still get roughly the same result. There's no question, though, it needs to be a big number over the next 10 years if we're really going to meet our future infrastructure needs. So while we haven't run out and said, Mr. President, please increase the budget by exactly $737 billion, or what we estimated might be the federal contribution of roughly $450 billion over the next 10 years, we've said, let's have a serious conversation about increasing that investment. There are others who put out even larger numbers than what I've just suggested, more than a trillion dollars. We can figure out a right number, but that's the order of magnitude we need to be talking about. If we're talking about an extra 10 or $20 billion over the next 10 years, we're really talking about business as usual. If you look at what the Senate number was in the uh, EPW bill that passed out of committee before the August recess and multiplied that by two, which their number was a five-year number at 287, uh, we kind of get to the number you're talking about for the federal side. The bill that came out of the Senate Environment Public Works Committee did make a serious commitment in terms of increasing investment. It's encouraging, and we're excited that they're starting that conversation. Unfortunately, the way that the Senate works, I worked for 10 years in the Senate before coming to Business Roundtable. The Environment Public Works Committee puts out a bill saying this is the number we ought to be shooting for, and then they have to wait for another committee, the Finance Committee, to come out with, and here's where we're going to find the money for that thing. And often what happens is that they come out with a much lower number in where they're finding money. And so we don't end up reaching that goal. So that's an area where we're highly engaged right now, as I'm sure many folks in the transportation sector are engaged in trying to help the Senate and Congress generally figure out how to get enough money uh, into that bill so we really can meet the commitment that that initial legislation put forward. There's also language in your report that suggests the investment should be made in a fiscally responsible manner. Does that mean no new taxes? What does that mean? So fiscally responsible to us means that we should honor the principle that has long been at the heart of American infrastructure policy. And that is that generally, those who use an infrastructure system should be paying for their usage of it. And whether 
we're talking about when you turn on the tap and you get water, you're paying your water bill. Whether we're talking about when you turn on the lights, you get a bill from the electric company and pay that. Or whether when it comes to driving the roads, we've had to be a little indirect. Sometimes we can be direct, right? There's a toll that you pay if you're on a toll road. But most of the time, the way that we've captured this is through attacks on gasoline and motor fuels because that's a rough approximation of your usage of the system, and it's a very efficient way to collect that money. Figuring out the right user fee approach, whether that would be an increase in the gas tax, which has not been raised since the middle of the 1990s and has lost about 40% of its value because of inflation and increased construction costs uh, since that time, or whether it's transitioning to some type of fee that would actually be assessed for the number of miles you travel and would do a better job of capturing electric and hybrid vehicles, which use a lot less gasoline, but which use the road just as much as those gasoline-powered cars, or whether it's some tolling or, or some combination of that. That's generally the approach when it comes to highways, as an example, that we're talking about there. It's a fair way to do it. And for business, when we have trucks that consume a lot of fuel that are traveling on the road, we're very happy for business to pay their fair share. That's only right, and it's the proper way to do it. We all know that governors and legislatures out in the states have differing opinions on how to pay for infrastructure or what the federal share ought to be. I noticed that you also provide each state with a little bit of information from your report about how doing it this way would affect them, would benefit them, would help them. Is that why you did that, to help states see the light? You know, state governments actually, on average, are seeing the light. We should give the nation's governors a little bit of credit here. A majority of states have raised a user fee or multiple user fees in order to increase their investment in infrastructure. It's really the federal government that is doing the worst job of keeping up on that front. So part of the reason we did that, uh, it wasn't just to inform those governors of the benefits of reinvesting their infrastructure systems. Most are already talking about it. Many of them are doing it. But it was to remind the federal partner that this has a benefit back home, whether they're the senator from Wyoming or California or Delaware. And that's why we really wanted to break that down. And we wanted to show them that uh, no matter where you are from, all the money doesn't go to someone else. A big chunk comes right back to economic growth in your state. Every state is a net beneficiary as a result of this, some a little bit more than others, depending on where their economic strengths lie. But all of them would see a real benefit as a result of infrastructure investment. And it's hard to argue why uh, you wouldn't want to do that for the people of your state. Many believe that the governors and state lawmakers will be the ones who convince their own delegations when those members are back home to come here and get this done. In fact, uh, we're very excited to see Governor Larry Hogan, who's now the chair of the National Governors Association, making this a priority for him and his fellow governors for exactly that reason. And I hope that they are effective in talking to their representatives in Congress. I can tell you from my own experience as a Senate staffer, 
that when your governor calls, you take the call. <laughs> uh, and so that's an effective voice. I think it goes without saying you've been using this study to inform people on the Hill of what's possible. Absolutely. What's been the reception so far? You know, we found the reception is quite good. This is something that folks inherently understand because they see it in their own lives, too. And and for those of us who live in the nation's capital, we see it on the streets of D.C., too. So it's not hard for folks to understand the need here. Where the conversation gets challenging is when we talk about what we're going to do to find the funding to make this necessary investment. And it's hard sometimes for politicians to take a vote where they seem to be raising a tax on someone. But that's why we're trying to help them and their constituents understand that this is really a user fee and you get what you pay for. And if we want better infrastructure, we do all have to pay for it. This debate will no doubt extend into 2020. It might even go into 2021. Given that, what should we expect from the business roundtable on this issue heading into the next 12 or 18 months? You can expect us to continue making the case for this type of investment, showing not only how it helps alleviate the problems that we've got now, how it creates real economic benefits, not just for business, but for every American family, but also that it's good for communities that are struggling. Uh, infrastructure is a key way to help lift up those communities that are feeling disconnected from growth in other parts of their state or, or of regional economies. It's a way to help bring a sense of pride to a community that may be lost an employer or something else. This is really something that has a multiplier effect on the economy no matter where it is. It's hard to argue against this type of investment unless it's a huge investment in a project that doesn't really do something, as sometimes happened in the 90s with, quote, bridges to nowhere or whatnot. But we really aren't seeing that anymore. We're seeing lots of need, and it's hard to imagine that if we increase that investment that it wouldn't be used pretty wisely because there's so much need in the system today. Next week, we'll have the latest from Washington on the issues industry follows, transportation funding, resiliency, and climate, from voices you won't hear anywhere else. That's Wednesday, October 16th on Hard Facts, a podcast production of the Portland Cement Association. I'm Robert Johnson. I'll see you then.